Good afternoon and welcome, welcome to Acting Up, an hour of resistance radio that explores the movements that made us, drawing from the activist archives through to the voices of resistance today. I'd like to acknowledge that we're broadcasting from stolen lands, the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and I'd like to pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Sovereignty of these lands has never been ceded. This year at Friends of the Earth, we are celebrating 45 years of resistance. That's 45 years we've been mobilising communities, resisting the oppressive forces of patriarchy to nuclear racism and transforming our future towards a more just world for all. You're with Megan today, and to continue our retrospective series, looking back at the incredible history of Friends of the Earth, we will be diving deep into the dumpster to bring back the gems of our waste campaigns. Friends of the Earth began campaign sorry Friends of the Earth began campaigning for a container deposit scheme back in 1980 through local groups right across the country. In Melbourne, uh, they secured grants for recycling research and to distribute information about recycling through the early 80s. Uh, and to talk us through some of this today, we will be catching up with Fran McDonald, who campaigned from 1988 through the 90s to reduce waste and bring in recycling. Later, we'll have Anine Cummins, who is our modern transform waste coordinator. We'll also hear an interview with Genevieve Fry, a long-time member of the Faux Food Co-op, and volunteer Edgy Gifford to talk through about how Friends of the Earth, the Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, has been tracking, tackling food and packaging waste for decades. Uh, and then to close up the show... Uh, no discussion about waste at Friends of the Earth would be complete without um, looking at how nuclear waste and waste dumps impact country right across these lands. And to fill us in on all of that, we will be speaking to Dr. Jim Green. As with every show and in this wonderful series, we'll cover the politics of the time over our 45 years of campaigning here in so-called Australia, what we did and why it's still important. So stick around after this community service announcement. We're talking about ecological thinning and subsidised logging, but we basically mean the same things, don't we, here? Wherever there are chemical corporations around the world, they're constantly trying to chip away at regulations. Earth Matters, bringing you environmental and social justice stories from developments in government and industry to the campaigns and communities that are standing up to them. Earth Matters plays at 11am Sunday and 6.30am Wednesday. Turn your dial to 855am or listen online at 3cr.org.au. While the headlines have subsided, the nuclear power plant is still not under control, with the spent fuel rods removed from only one out of four reactors. Law needs to change so that uh, our rights can be recognised, so that decisions in relation to the use and exploitation of our lands is out. Do the right thing, it's an obligation, and your planet will thank you for your cooperation. Don't 
You're listening to Acting Up. We're celebrating Friends of the Earth's 45th birthday with a retrospective series looking into our 45 years of creative resistance. This is Megan, and what we've just heard was a jingle from the 90s, which I remember well, coming on between cartoons uh, on various TV shows and may be part of the reason I'm interested in protecting the environment today. Uh, but on the phone to talk to us about all things waste from campaigning uh, through the late 80s and into the 90s is Fran McDonald. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Megan. Good to be with you. Ah, such a pleasure. So to kick us off, can you share with us how you first got involved with Friends of the Earth? Uh, that's actually a really long story, but uh, in a nutshell, um, I walked in one day when Bo was based in Brunswick Street and basically said, look, I'm here to help, what can I do? And uh, I was shown, you know, a number of, of projects, a number of uh, campaigns, a number of programs and told, you know, see what takes your fancy and uh, I took it from there, and I basically didn't leave the place for another five or six years. <laughs> it's a familiar story for many people at Faux today, I'm sure. Yeah, I think it's actually one of the real strengths of Friends of the Earth, that you really can uh, go in there and be, you know, give a whole lot of practical assistance in your own way straight away. And, and that sort of grassroots uh, element is... Yeah, is absolutely what attracted me, and I think it's a real, real strength. Absolutely. So the campaign uh, against waste or for, for a container deposit scheme kicked off in the early 80s. When did you get involved with that? Well, I when I got involved, it was a recycling campaign, as, as we called it. Um, I got involved in 1987, and the campaign for beverage container deposit legislation had, yeah, already been running. It was in abeyance at the time. I don't think there wasn't much going on with the recycling campaign when I joined. I think that people had been um, a bit tired, basically, from uh, campaigning for some pretty radical measures, which um, were, you know, absolutely necessary, and we're finally seeing some action from governments on them now, um, but you know, I didn't really get anywhere fast uh, back in the 80s. Um, so yeah, when I when I started at Friends of the Earth, um, my interest was really in, in relation to waste was really in focusing on that waste minimisation hierarchy and looking at uh, reduction of waste at source as the most important uh, thing to do. But with recycling being a really important element of it as well. And, yeah, I very quickly, um, well, people got in touch with me from all sorts of uh, avenues, really, that had been involved in the uh, the campaign for deposit legislation. And that was people from local government, they were academics, um, old, you know, Friends of the Earth activists and activists from other organisations, uh, and then just lots of people in the community who just thought it was a good idea. And what were the sort of campaign messages you were working with? Well, the thing that we really wanted, the things that we really wanted to uh, to say was that you need to reduce waste at source. Back in those days, it, it, when I first began in 1987, 
really, we hadn't heard of the greenhouse effect. I didn't actually hear that term until I think um, two or three years later even. might have been, yeah, the late 80s uh, that we started to hear a lot about that. But it was really about reducing waste at source, saving energy and saving resources. And terms like circular economy and the polluter pays principle were really important to us. Uh, and of course, they're still really important today. But that's that's what we really wanted to see, a a circular economy start. Uh, and that's where, I mean, container deposit legislation was a really key strategic measure uh, to kickstart the circular economy, of course. So that was, I think, really why um, it was a focus for SO back then. Mm. And... Like how how did the campaign go in creating that circular economy? Like what what was public recognition of what that meant, and you know how how did you change that? Well, I mean, I think as everyone knows, we didn't get uh, container deposit legislation in Victoria. I think the uh, the campaign in Victoria, which was in those days really based um, a lot on the fact that uh, deposits were very successful in South Australia. I think that campaign really helped uh, a lot of other state campaigns. So, you know, eventually, of course, you've seen deposits um, be implemented elsewhere in Australia. But at that time, it was an absolute no for um, for the packaging industry and for those organisations which supported the packaging industry, like Keep Australia Beautiful and, frankly, like the state government. Um, so, you know, we literally had... Uh, Big uh, companies, uh, packaging companies and companies involved in the waste industry, and I won't name, mention any names, but um, we did actually have companies who were threatening to leave the state altogether and take all their jobs, all their work out of Victoria if the government introduced container deposit legislation. Mm, the classic so it was threat. So we didn't get it, but we did use it, but it was a good lever for other measures. So uh, I do think that it really did, uh, the campaign led to better um, waste minimisation policy in Victoria. I think it also led to the creation of um, a lot more serious effort by uh, industry. And I think another really important, uh, and I won't say byproduct because there's a really a whole parallel development that occurred in the 80s, was the engagement uh, of local government in this space. So when I first started in the campaign, um, and I'm not saying at all that it was due to Friends of the Earth that the, the changes were made, but when I first started, it, there were really only a handful of councils in the state who offered um, any real recycling services. Uh, you know, there were the bottleos and places that you could, you could actually take your recycling, very limited recycling, um, and there were very, very few actual recycling collections. And so what we did was um, we actually really tried to engage councils in, um, in putting on recycling services and getting involved in the whole debate, and they did, and they really took that on. And uh, I think then it was, wasn't only then that um, those services were offered, but because of those services, it meant that you know, individual people, residents, ordinary people started really seeing that this is something practical which they could get involved with and they could do was actually to start reducing their own waste. Uh, so that was really important. And I think also uh, the local government voice became very, very important. 
Um, and I really, you know, I actually want to acknowledge uh, someone like, like Mike Hill, who the erstwhile um, uh, CEO of the uh, People's Republic of Moreland, um, but, you know, he was the mayor of, of Moreland and before that the mayor of Brunswick, was, was very important in that as well. So there were strong local government voices like his that worked closely with us. Uh, and I think that is a, an enduring legacy, actually. Yeah, fantastic. And so could you like to summarise what some of the, uh, like who was the target of your campaigns and what tactics you were using to, to reach them? So it was very, it was very broad based. So when, when you say target, it was, we targeted in different ways. So this was, first of all, the state government. And uh, I was on the Recycling and Litter Advisory Committee, as it was known, which was, um, I think it was one of the first, actually, uh, state government set up committees to really look at recycling as an issue for the whole state and had um, reps from local government, from the state, from packaging industry, and, and I was on that committee as well, representing FOE, uh, to look at waste minimisation policy and I mean, we advocated really strongly throughout that time for um, for CDL, for, for deposit legislation, but it, it, uh, there were a lot of other changes, I think, as I said, that I think we got through in, in better waste uh, policy. Um, and we weren't just sort of involved in, you know, talk fest on the committee. We actually um, were involved in, in some direct action at times as well. Um, we were also... Uh, pushing the um, companies that produce waste. So not just the packaging companies, but the paper companies, the media companies who produce newspapers uh, and so on to reduce their waste um, by, you know, introducing recycled content, for instance, in in newspapers. And uh, we did some direct action around that. Uh, One really fun uh, action that we organised was a, a threat that we didn't actually end up carrying out to uh, dump a whole lot of newspapers outside the, um, the front door of the Herald Sun. <laughs> uh, and um, it, was, it was really great because the, the newspapers actually um, came on board. And uh, I think a lot of people did. They, they sort of, when, once you know, we began to show them the scale of the, of the problem, that basically we're all just creating this rubbish and it's going into landfills and it's going into... Um, you know, rivers and it's going into our environment and we're not uh, actually closing the loop at all. Um, a lot of people could say, look, this just, it makes sense to stop that. Um, as I said, you know, another target was local government and they very quickly uh, came on board and saw that, yeah, you know, they really needed to um, set up recycling systems, that it was something that they could see as, as core business, it was something that their residents really wanted. Uh, and then Ordinary people, and I think that is actually something that's really important to to emphasise too. It's for us back then, without um, climate change as a major focus, recycling had a lot of other benefits. It was yeah, saving resources and energy and waste. It was also a way in for people to broader environmental consciousness as well. So a lot of people sort of became interested in in, uh, recycling and sorting out their own rubbish and that actually led to other interest, to interest in, um, you know, reducing environmental impact in other ways. So 
and the people who went from recycling onto a real interest in alternative transport and into saving forests and uh, looking at alternative energy being very opposed to nuclear energy and uranium mining, for instance. So it was, um, it was a great, very accessible message. Absolutely. It sounds like a very broad-based campaign. Um, and just to finish us up before we let you go, Fran, you've been deeply rooted in the environments, grassroots environments movement um, since that time. Um, moving on to community emissions reductions, what advice do you have for emerging activists uh, and people who are just joining the game now? Yeah, well... For me, um, you know, I joined Friends of the Earth with just the idea, I just wanted to do something about, um, you know, uh, reducing environmental impact. It was just a passion uh, that I had. um, And I didn't have any other agenda. But, yes, look, it's gone on to be something that I've just been involved in for the rest of my life. Um, And I just would say to anyone who is interested in doing environmental work, whatever else you do, whether it's... uh, doing study or trying to get work, paid work in the area, actually do go and get involved in the grassroots campaigns. Um, Not only because it... um, Oh, there's two reasons, really. I mean, one is that it teaches you so much, and that was, for me, it just taught me so much about uh, the real reasons that you actually um, do, you know, environmental work, like really looking at causes and not just symptoms and really looking at the interconnections so it was a really fabulous education in that way. But also because it does show you that individual people actually can make a difference. That all that stuff about, um, you know, the, the negative message that we get, uh, that, um, oh, you know, there's nothing we can do and Australians, you know, what kind of um, impact do we really have? It's not true. We actually have a huge impact and it can be a very positive impact. And I really think that's... Um, that's the thing for Friends of the Earth. And the other thing I would say, and I'm, I'm sure this is the case now as it was when I was there, but it's for everyone. It isn't just uh, something that you have to be, um, you know, a certain age or a certain demographic or anything like that. It, when I was involved, it was people of all ages, people from all sorts of backgrounds with all sorts of jobs um, and all sorts of political views as well. It was... Um, really, really embracing and inviting. And, and that's the other thing that I just think is um, so important about, about Friends of the Earth and organisations like that. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Fran. It's a pleasure. It's been a pleasure to have you. You're listening to 3CR. This is Friends of the Earth's 45th birthday retrospective history series. And we'll be continuing this discussion uh, about how the Friends of the Earth Food Co-op um, has been working to reduce waste uh, for 45 years after this community service announcement. 3CR broadcasters present over 100 radio programs every week, including a diverse range of community language shows. Come to one of the 3CR community radio, please subscribe now. Just a moment, Ila, Ila, 3CR community radio, Araja Al Ishtrakal and Ningal Ungalin Samuhavanoli, 3CR, Kurt Kondir Kondirkal, Rindri Nayingal. Están escuchando Radio Comunitaria 3CR. Suscríbete ahora. 
Support the station that gives your community a voice. Subscribe to 3CR. And to continue our journey uh, exploring everything waste at Friends of the Earth, this is an interview that I conducted with Genevieve Fry this morning, who's busy down at the food co-op cooking up a storm. So take a listen. Welcome to the show, Jen. Hi, Megan. Thanks for having me. Oh, so, so pleased to have you on. So when did you get involved with the food co-op and what was it that attracted you to it? Well, I've been there for quite a while now, maybe 14 years or something like that. I first came in to volunteer because a friend um, told me about the co-op and she was volunteering there. And I just moved from south side to north side and I didn't really have um, that many friends or sort of know the community locally. Um, So, and I was really up for doing some volunteer work. I used to visit Smith Street as a teenager to go to Animal Liberation Youth Group (laughs) uh, in the 90s. Um, And I do also remember like popping down to Friends of the Earth as well to buy cruelty-free soap and things like that. But I, yeah, so I started volunteering mainly because my friend told me about it. And as soon as I got there, I was like, oh, this place just suits me so well. It suits my ethos and my ethics. And it's got the most amazing vibe. It's quite hard to describe it until you've been in there. And also probably until you've engaged and volunteered, which opens up this whole other world um, of a really like-minded community and group of inspiring people who just work really hard to maintain um, this this wonderful space where people can come, they can shop without any packaging, there's all of these sort of waste-wise systems in place, there's a great cafe with affordable, beautiful food, but there's also just this sense of community and a safe space where all people are welcome. And I've never experienced anywhere like that anywhere in the world. It's pretty special. It sure is. Uh, and earlier in the season, we did a whole show on the food co-op where we covered off on the community aspect and how the food co-op was winning hearts and minds with vegan lunch plates back when vegetarian was a dirty word. But this show is all about waste. Can you talk us through the main ways the food co-op works to minimise waste? So we work on different levels, obviously. We work on our own waste reduction capacity. So uh, so that includes in the grocery store and in the kitchen. Um, buying everything in bulk is obviously part of the ethos of the co-op but having a kitchen that's linked to a bulk grocery store you're just automatically reducing so much packaging that in a conventional restaurant you pretty much buy everything often pre-made 
sauces and stuff and, and including a lot of packaging, whereas we make everything pretty much from scratch in the co-op and, and we're just drawing on that pool of bulk that we've got there. Um, and then in the cafe as well, we're very waste conscious in terms of our organic food waste. So we try wherever possible to cook with stock that needs using up. So that's another way we can reduce waste from the bulk um, section and also from the vegetable section at, at the co-op. If there's anything that needs to be used, it just gets given to the cook and you get to incorporate that into the, the food. And we can only do that because the setup of the meals that we serve there is that it changes every day and we just create a really balanced meal that's um, it's seasonal. We cook to the weather, but it, it allows us that flexibility to use up almost absolutely everything that uh, would otherwise in grocery stores and um, the vegetable fruit retailers might get thrown out. Um, so that's a really awesome thing that we're able to do. But then on top of that, so we're minimising any kind of actual food waste. We offer two lunch plate sizes, which I think is good because then there's less waste, like people only order what they're hungry for and what they need. So we're trying to make sure people finish their lunch as well. Mm. And then we, any scraps that we have, we... Um, compost them in buckets they go to Fitzroy Primary School um, and they've got a growing compost program there that's actually it's being expanded by the city of Yarra and hopefully going to be offered to residents of um, the city of Yarra to take their food scraps there as well so that's kind of become almost like this pioneering program so we've we've been doing Fitzroy Primary compost uh, I don't know, at least for a decade, um, probably more. And, yeah, so that's a fantastic way to get all that organic food waste and matter back into the system and close mm. the loop. Stop it going to landfill. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And and not just that, but turn it into something really useful for people. And we've recently been able to add serviettes and... Like we do have compostable um, like cardboard lunch boxes that we offer for people as takeaways, and we're now able to compost those and serviettes and hand towel as well. So that's been really great and a good um, like recent or development development, yeah, to reduce our waste further as well, which is really cool. Yeah, awesome. And kind of as I see it in the food food co-op, there's two angles. We've got the plastic waste, and we've got the food waste. Um, so can you talk to more about what your what the food co-op offers in terms of reducing plastic waste? Yeah, sure. So we buy in bulk, which means there is less packaging than when you package things um, individually, obviously. But we also work really closely with our suppliers to return containers wherever possible. So our tofu comes in big buckets and then we return those buckets to the supplier, they refill them and bring them back. And it's the same with a lot of our detergents and conditioners and um, bathroom stuff that we have in bulk as well. So those containers all go back to Williamstown, I think, <laughs> and they get reused as well. And, the, um, yeah, we've got big, uh, big laundry powder buckets and stuff um, from another supplier. They do that as well. So it's not 
every supplier, but we're always working on getting our suppliers on board with waste minimization. And that in itself, you know, is another way that the little, like ripples of the co-op and the ethos keep sort of spreading out and influencing a broader community of of people. Like suppliers might not have ever considered that they could reuse those containers um, and it might spend them to then offer that service to someone else. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And more recently, we've seen the mainstream really get behind talking about plastic waste. And um, how does that make you feel as a humble co-op member uh, to see plastic bag bans across the state, major supermarkets banning bags and kind of the rise of the bulk food um, industry? You know, it's kind of returned yeah, it's absolutely amazing, actually, and really heartening. And I think as it grows um, and and people do start to really uh, say to retailers they don't want stuff wrapped in plastic. You know, I know there's been a big pushback against Coles and Woolworths for wrapping. I think they wrap all their organic produce in plastic or something ridiculous. Mm, don't and, you use know, chemicals on my food, but wrap it in, wrap it, it in. Yeah, petrochemical plastic. And consumers are powerful, and that's part of what the co-op does as well, is empower people to say, no, I have the choice. This I can choose to reuse my containers. I can choose to say no to plastic. I can choose to say no to products wrapped in plastic. And if that's all that's available to me, I'm going to contact you know, that retailer and say that's not good enough. You know, we. what are we doing to the planet? What is going to happen in 50 years' time? We're all just drowning in plastic. Mm. So, yeah, it's it's been amazing to have um, sort of witness that mainstream shift in consciousness. And I'm super excited about what the future holds in that respect. I, I think it's hopefully just going to get better and better and I'm so grateful to have been to still be part of something that is so trailblazing you know that co-op has always been there plastic bag free for 40 years always pushing that agenda but then to see it embraced in a in a wider way in a broader way is like super exciting it totally is well that's probably a good um, time for us to finish. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, it's such a pleasure, Megan. Thanks for having me. Hi, Hi. we're from Braver College, and you're listening to Free CR Community Radio on 8:55 a.m. Indigenous people in Australia and the Pacific have borne the brunt of nuclear testing. And this was not done unconsciously. We found documents in the British archives saying that, yes, there is uh, certain hazards, but only to primitive peoples, those that don't wear clothes and don't wash, unlike us British. So the sort of racism inherent in this whole operation was known and understood from the beginning that these were the casualties of a larger imperial policy and that they were able to bear the brunt because there were very small populations and didn't have much political voice. And as we fast forward to today, we see that same thing. 3CR, keeping you informed about Australia's nuclear past and present. At such a time, it's important to have a voice like 3CR. Steady, constant, 
sane and committed to a nuclear-free Australia. You're listening to 3CR. This is Friends of the Earth's 45th birthday retrospective history series. And today we've been getting down and dirty talking about the waste campaigns that we've been running at Friends of the Earth over those 45 years. And um, in the studio I've got Anine Cummins, who is our modern-day Transform Waste Coordinator, and Edgy Gifford, who has volunteered at the Food Co-op and uh, is a volunteer regularly down at Friends of the Earth. Welcome to the studio. Thanks so much, Megan. Thank you. So, Edgy, um, you have volunteered at the Food Co-op. Um can you speak to how your experience uh, is, you know, similar or contrasting to what Jen has just shared with us through that interview we played? Yeah, sure. Um, I didn't know about um, the food co-op for Friends of the Earth until I um, walked down Smith Street um, in 2017, and it was closed, uh, but I saw it said, like, Friends of the Earth, and I was like, oh, that looks cool, because I've been, like, um, it was my first year of studying environmental science, so I was, like, listening, oh, well, the lecturers were telling us about the state of our planet, so it was really cool to see that, so, yeah, so um, I went in, um, like, a, a month later to go have some um, something to eat and also to check it out, and realised that you could volunteer there, so I looked online and um, saw that I could volunteer the food co-op. So after that, after uni um, and the summer break, I started doing some volunteering. And when you started volunteering, uh, did you notice the um, like the practices that the food co-op uses to minimise waste? Did, was that something that um, took your attention? And what did you think about all of that? Yes, it definitely did because um, I've been in hospitality for like five years while studying and um, I've never been worked in a cafe that didn't have um, like, uh, they didn't have like coffee cups or um, like takeaway um, cutlery or anything like that and also like encourage their customers to bring their own takeaway containers and to um, and also have a shop to that had um, bulk food where they can bring their own containers to have all that. So it was all very new and amazing because, like, after learning about the waste problem that we have in Australia and, like, the our planet that is um, choking with it, it was really nice to see there was alternatives and that I could help out with that because it was like um yeah it really like took a toll and it was nice to see that I could help out and um through uni you conducted an environmental management plan at the food co-op is that right yes I did so for one of my units um we needed to complete an environmental management system um, like reports, so it's which is like a one of the tools that you, if you're an environmental management officer kind of thing, that you can um, try to implement in an organisation to try to reduce their environmental impact. So from um, electricity to waste to um, water, 
Um, so yeah, they were and very. And in your assessment, yeah. like, how did you how did you rate the food co-op back then? Oh well, I already knew that they were like amazing, and I was kind <laughs> of like compared to like the um, the rest most organisations in our um, in Melbourne. Um, so um, yeah, so I already knew they were really good, but I thought like in anything, it's really hard. Um, there's always waste being produced, and you can always get be a little bit better. So um, yeah, I contacted Beth, and she said, yeah, sure. So, yeah. And did you find any room for improvement? <laughs> yes. Unfortunately, to be like, the, yeah, like any human being, it doesn't matter how good you are, you're always producing waste and you can always improve. Um, but I'll, like, they, they are doing their best. And as um, um, Jean, no, what was Jen. Jen, sorry. Sorry, Jen. Um, as Jen said, um, they're always like um, contacting their suppliers to try to reduce um, their waste and packaging. Um, so it's not like they're doing their best to try to get their suppliers. And I know the suppliers is one of the big um, reasons why they can't be 100% um, low waste because, like, say, like apparently um, for one of them. Um, Curry was telling me that like there's like weight requirements so um things can't like policies out there um so you can't um have certain things in certain weight and like lo- like plastic and stuff is generally lighter so that's like one of the yeah mm. things that is limiting and or stopping them from being 100 percent. yeah and it's an ongoing process yeah and anine um as you kick-started the Transform Waste Collective last year, uh, can you speak to your thoughts um, on, on what's changed and what's similar in, you know, what Fran was talking to us about? Yeah, it was so inspiring hearing Fran. Um, and also I loved her talking about circular economy because here I was thinking that this was such a brand new concept. Um, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a new buzzword, like even Scott Morrison's talking about the circular economy now. But apparently it's been around for quite a few decades, um, which doesn't really surprise me. Uh, but yeah, it was lovely to hear Fran speaking about recycling. And I'm so inspired by Foe's history with recycling, like um that they're a big part of how we have the system we have today um and the fact that you know that people know to recycle that they that that that's just part of most people's consciousness that you are supposed to recycle even if they don't quite know how to recycle or what to recycle or what bin to put it in they know that it's supposed to happen um which is why which is entirely why I started transform waste actually it was based off um noticing that China was stopping taking our recycling. So when I found out that China was stopping taking our recycling, I thought, well, that's a bit strange. And I looked into a bit more and I thought, wait a minute, Australia is not particularly good at recycling. Australia is really good at shipping our recycling to other countries for them to deal with. And um, and so when I started Transform Waste, it was largely from the knowledge of we are going to be facing a really huge problem, which, of course, we now are. Um, 
that our recycling is getting stockpiled and that all these hard-won efforts that Friends of the Earth and other groups have won over 40 years are being are backsliding. Like the number of conversations I have with community members who aren't super bought in to waste or whatever and them saying, but recycling doesn't really work anymore. Why should I bother? Right. So it's a really frightening time where we are literally um, there's a there was just a fire at a recycling plant in W.A. a couple of days ago, like major toxic fires because it's plastics that are burning. Um, They're finding plastics in people's blood and feces now, like it's in our rain, it's in our soil in Malaysia. They have it in the eggs that the chickens are laying like we're just at a really crazy time where we're inundated by plastics and we're and we do not have a good enough solution for how we actually deal with them. So so that's a large part of what Transform Waste does is call on the state government to actually create policies that will work that will make sense to people that where it will actually work to get things out of landfill and get them into a circular economy. Mm. So it sounds very similar, really, Mm. to what Fran was working on Mm. back then. Um, What what, what would a circular economy look like? So circular economy is one of those words that can kind of mean whatever you want it to mean. Um, so a circular economy is, it's the implication, right? It's that you don't use new resources. That's my definition anyway. I want an economy where you are no longer digging up stuff to put in stuff for us to utilize. Instead, you are taking these precious materials that are in our mobile phones or whatever, and you're finding effective methods to make sure that they are getting reused. What that also implies is that you're no longer using really low-grade plastic. Um, Low-grade plastic cannot be effectively recycled. It degrades too quickly. Um, And it's literally on everything. It's this thing that producers think that we need plastics, that we want plastics as consumers. And I don't know very many consumers that are demanding plastics on things. Um, I know a lot of consumers that are really sick to death of plastics on things. Uh, And instead, it's this idea of customer convenience. Um, So, again, we're just living in this nutty society where everyone knows that this is not something that can keep going, but we keep participating in it because we don't have any other choices. So a circular economy in a nutshell, would be taking all that crazy stuff that causes us such angst and actually making it into something that makes sense. And we heard from Fran that, you know, the state government has been quite slow Mm. at bringing in some of the changes they were pushing for, like a container deposit scheme. Mm. But the real change was coming from local governments. Mm -hmm. Is that still what you see today? Oh, absolutely. In regards to waste, local governments do bear the brunt of, well, pretty much everything. They bear the brunt of the financial responsibility, of the education, of the contracting with um, whoever provides the recycling services, which is how we ended up in such a mess here in Victoria in February and then again in August. It was because of one particular recycling provider, um, who SKM, who um, were not doing a terribly good job and, um, and kept having to shut down. And the state government, so the Labour government, I feel like 
they have felt like waste was something they could put on the back burner. Like it was invisible. Like people didn't really notice it and didn't really care about it and all that sort of stuff. Out of sight, out of mind. Literally. Um, and that's how people feel about waste most of the time, right? You like chuck it in a bin and it disappears. But it doesn't disappear. It goes somewhere, right? And that's the whole problem. Um, so... State government is starting to move. Um, a circular economy plan is going to drop sometime in the next month. Uh, so I have high hopes for what that looks like. And certainly Transform Waste is going to be doing a lot of work to hold them to account and make sure that's actually an effective plan. Well, it's very exciting times. This is Acting Up. You're with Megan from Friends of the Earth. And we'll be back right after this. On Thursday 28th of November at 12pm, environment groups and communities from across Victoria will peacefully rally together at Parliament to call for urgent action for our natural world. After five years of the Andrews government, nature deserves more, especially in the face of climate change. Victorians need new and better funded national parks, stronger nature laws and better protection for our threatened forests, rivers, beaches, oceans and native plants and animals. We need real action for our natural places and wildlife now. Join in the Nature for Life rally. Bring a sign to highlight the natural places you love that deserve better protection. See you on Parliament Steps, Thursday, 28th of November at 12pm. Look for Nature for Life rally on Facebook and visit Victoria National Parks Association website, vnpa.org.au forward slash rally. VNPA is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 45 Years of Creative Resistance, a retrospective history series about Friends of the Earth as part of the 3CR's Acting Up program. And we're fast running out of time, but of course it wouldn't be a Friends of the Earth show about waste without a discussion of nuclear waste dumps. Joining us in studio is Dr Jim Green to share with us a snapshot of the long history uh, we have campaigning against nuclear waste. Welcome Jim. Thanks Megan. So we've danced around the topic of nuclear waste dumps in a few earlier episodes when and how did Friends of the Earth begin campaigning against burying radioactive material in the ground? Oh, gee, probably since Friends of the Earth was established 45 years ago, but from my memory it goes back to the mid-90s, and that was when the Howard government was really keen to build another nuclear research reactor at Lucas Heights in southern Sydney, and the government's bargain was you're going to get a new reactor whether you like it or not, but we'll move the nuclear waste off-site. So that led to a six-year push to dump nuclear waste in South Australia, but that was defeated by an extraordinary campaign uh, led by traditional owners, but with terrific input from environmentalists. And we had the South Australian State Government on our side. We even had the Murdoch tabloid in Adelaide on our side, which made things interesting. And what was it about that campaign that was, you know, sticks out most to you? Well, I just can't believe we did it because there was no point in that campaign where we had any realistic uh, hopes of winning. Uh, so I'm just amazed looking back at how much work, how many people did for so many years uh, when the government was so belligerent. But So, you know, the lesson from that would be persistence and determination, but things slowly uh, swung in our favour and there was a court case which went in our favour and the Howard government was nervous about the uh, upcoming federal election in 2004, so that's when they gave up on it. 
Yeah, it's certainly inspiring to hear campaigns win um, in the face of so much adversity. Um, but nuclear waste dumps have been thrown about from time to time, you know, since then and long before. What is it about this landmass of so-called Australia that makes it such a prime target for global waste dumps? Well, if you look at it from Google Earth, I think all of us would have to agree it looks like a pretty good option, you know, if you compare it to, say, some of the countries which are producing waste, like Taiwan or Japan or South Korea and a bunch of others. So people look at it on a map and it seems uh, sparsely populated with vast areas of desert. But, you know, one of the problems is that it's Aboriginal land and consistently Aboriginal people have said no and consistently they've fought and they've won. So it's been remarkable, not only the uh, Kunga Judas who led the campaign we were just talking about, uh, but for the decade following that, it was Muckety traditional owners in the Northern Territory and extraordinary. They had so little on their side and so few resources, but incredible persistence. Uh, and they won in 2014. Mm. Yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. Um, and was there ever a time in your memory that the discussion around nuclear waste uh, moved from throwing it off the back of the ship in the middle of the ocean to, um, you know, genuinely talking about how we need to manage this? Well, we talk about it all the time. But um, the government's not listening, you know. We've got beautifully written papers up on the website. We're going chapter and verse through the logical things that any rational person would do to begin to resolve this problem, starting with an inventory or stockpile so we know what exactly the scale of the problem and the nature of the problem. But successive federal governments haven't even got that far. So do we have any idea how much nuclear waste is accumulating in stockpiles around the country? Yeah, we've got a ballpark figure. It might be something like 6,000 cubic metres now, but um, it's so distinctive. Uh, the high-level nuclear waste, which comes from, in our case, from the research reactor at Lucas Heights, that is orders of magnitude more radioactive and more hazardous than all the other forms of waste. So, for example, there's 2,000 cubic metres stored at Woomera in South Australia on Defence Department land, but one single fuel rod from the reactor at Lucas Heights is vastly more radioactive than that entire 2,000 cubic metres. And there's another distinctive feature about nuclear waste, which is that it contains fissile or explosive material. So all the power reactors around the world, they're producing enough explosive material to build about 12,000 nuclear bombs every year. So over the years and over the decades, this is this extraordinary stockpile of of weapons material, primarily plutonium, but also some others. And that's one of the really scary things is, uh, you know, it's just fanning proliferation around the world. Mm, it's a really scary idea to think of. Mm. Um, so what do we say is the best, you know, the best solution? Like, obviously, reduce, reuse, maybe not recycle, yeah. <laughs> but like how do we how do we get rid of the nuclear waste that we've already got and really put an end to creating it yeah we definitely don't recycle that's what I was thinking about when <laughs> Anine and Edgy were speaking before because recycling in with nuclear waste means separating out the uranium and reusing it that's that's okay but in that process you're also separating the plutonium so it can be used directly for bombs so we are strongly opposed to uh, recycling 
Uh, but you would start with an invent. Uh, we used to have a more rigid position. I think that's worth noting. Environment groups that used to be above ground storage at the point of production, and we would hold to that that line even when it didn't really seem to fit the problem. So these days we're a bit more nuanced. It's uh, do an inventory, hold a public inquiry, and then take it from there. You know that public inquiry would throw out different streams of waste. There would be some. Uh, where you could make an argument for some f- sort of centralised uh, management of that waste because it's not being properly handled where it is or, or because of security risks or so on. So then it would be above ground or below ground, is it best dealt, dealt with on a state and territory basis or on a national basis? Just those sort of practical questions. But there's lots that doesn't actually need to be managed at all until it decays and then it goes to landfill. But also most of the waste is at Lucas Heights, run by the Nuclear Science and Technology Organisation, including that spent nuclear fuel, which is the really hazardous stuff. So for the coming decades, there's a really simple solution. Leave it there because that's where it is now. People say the waste has to go somewhere. Well, it is somewhere. It's at Lucas Heights. That's where they've got the security, the expertise. Uh, that's the short to medium term solution. Mm. And to those suggesting that nuclear energy is a solution to climate change, um, you know, what, what would we say to that and what impact would that have on nuclear waste around the world? Uh, well, it would dramatically increase Australia's nuclear waste stockpiles because we've only got the small research reactors, so Australia's waste problems would be magnified by orders of magnitude and no country in the whole world has got a, a repository, a dump for high-level nuclear waste. There is one for intermediate level waste in the United States, a deep underground repository. But within the first few years of that opening, safety standards slipped away, layers of regulatory oversight were stripped away, and it was badly mismanaged to the point that they had a chemical explosion which shut down the repository for three years and exposed 22 or 23 workers to radiation, and the total cost of that was around about $3 billion. So I think the biggest problem there is these repositories have to be operated safely for literally many thousands of years, for hundreds of millennia. And, you know, they couldn't even get through the first three or four years without safety standards dramatically declining. Mm. Well, when it comes to nuclear waste, the answer at Friends of the Earth is always no. And that brings us to just about to the end of the show. Uh, I'd like to thank all our guests for joining us today, Fran McDonald, Genevieve Fry, Anine Cummins, and Edgy and Jim, who we've still got in the studio. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I'd also like to thank my co-producer, M. Gayfar and Phil Evans, for their hard work throughout this series, and everyone at 3CR who has supported and encouraged us to make this show a reality. All of our episodes are now available for streaming on demand via 3cr.org.au slash acting up. Uh, and if you're enjoying this series but think we've missed something that you were involved with at Friends of the Earth, please get in touch. We would love to hear from you via our Facebook page or give us a call. And stay tuned. Next up, we've got Jan's Tuesday Home Time, another long-standing radical current affairs show that brings you the voices from International Grassroots Campaign. Taking us out today is No Such Thing as Waste by Formidable Vegetable. See you later.
wasn't on the main. The only water we had to use was in a jackpot from the rain. Cause there's no such thing as waste. Every crumb. I save my seeds and eat my weeds and feed the leftovers. 